Hello and welcome to the Just Interesting People podcast. My name is Rosie and my pronouns are she, her, and I'm here with my co-host and husband Jeremy and his pronouns are he, him. In today's episode, we are talking to Rebecca. Rebecca is an author, a psychotherapist, a public speaker, a group fitness instructor, an extreme athlete and a disability rights advocate. She just does it all. <laughs> Rebecca in this episode talked to us about her life with Usher syndrome type 3, which causes her to go deaf and blind. She was diagnosed with this condition when she was a teenager, and she shares with us how she adjusted and coped with changes in her body throughout her life. She also shared with us why she believes it's important to live life to the fullest, and also she's talking to us about the importance of raising awareness about the deaf and blind community. We are talking about sign language, protactile language, and how we can make our society more inclusive for everyone. Enjoy. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. We are both so excited to talk to you and welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you so much, Rebecca, for being with us today. I'm super excited about uh, this conversation with you, honestly. You are like a badass superwoman busy woman right mental everything that you do i think (laughs) like you wrote a book uh you are an author it's called not fade away you are a therapist you are a fitness instructor you do crazy athletic challenges stuff uh you are a disability right advocate you did like a TED talk you do public speaking you how how do you handle all that (laughs) That's a good question. You know, it's people sometimes ask me whether this is something I was born with or if it has to do with having a condition, Usher syndrome, that's causing me to go deaf and blind and whether this sense of urgency that I have comes from that. And I don't think it's as simple as, yes, I'm going deaf and blind and I want to do everything that I can. But I also think that that's a big part of it. But I think Mm -hmm. that having a condition like Usher syndrome that causes progressive deaf blindness makes me keenly aware of two things, a sense of time and how precious time is, and also a sense of how it feels and what it means to really be alive and what makes me feel Mm. alive. Which is a very important reminder because very often we take life and everything that we have for granted until usually some shit happens. Mm-hmm. And then we realize we have those realization that life is precious and that all the little moments, all the people that we have around us, we should appreciate them a little bit more. And it's often the case, right? Anyway, for, for, for I think most of us. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that, you know, it's interesting mm-hmm. because the, the types of things we, we hear so much about practicing mindfulness and having gratitude and it becomes uh, spoken so many, so many times and so frequently in mainstream culture that people don't even really even register it anymore. It's just like, yeah, yeah, I got to be mindful. And they don't even know actually what they're talking about or what gratitude means. And I was one of those people for a long time. And I will tell you that being able to use my other senses, like being able to learn Braille and to Mm -hmm. develop the muscles in my brain and on the very tips of my fingers to learn this new type of reading and registering information, I feel tremendously grateful for the fact that the the human body is so adaptable and malleable Mm -hmm. to whatever it is that we face. 
And so whether it's the ability to learn Braille, whether it's the ability to find the top to my pen that I dropped on the floor, that for anyone, it would be nothing. They would find it in two seconds. For me to be able to find that pen top feels like a win (laughs) because it's something that, you know, the littlest things that uh, are just nothing to people are things that for someone like me, I feel very, very grateful to, to be able to do. So before we dive into like more in, in detail of your story, can you tell us a little bit about, about about yourself and about the syndrome that you mentioned? Just a quick intro, basically. Yeah. So I am Rebecca Alexander. My pronouns are she, her. I live in New York City. I have a condition called Usher syndrome, type three. And Usher syndrome is the leading genetic cause of deaf blindness in the US and around the world. And so there are three types of Usher syndrome. A person born with Usher syndrome type one is born completely deaf and they're progressively losing their vision. A person with Usher syndrome type two is born generally with a specific amount of hearing loss and they're gradually losing their vision. And their hearing loss tends to stay pretty stable until they get into their later adulthood. And a person with Usher syndrome type 3, what I have experienced is the mildest onset of both progressive vision and hearing loss. Hmm. And so for people with Usher syndrome type 1 and type 3, generally we also have issues with balance, not as commonly with people who have Usher syndrome type 2. But when Hmm. I was 12, I had difficulty seeing the blackboard at school. And I told my dad that I thought I needed glasses. He took me to an optometrist. They said there was something in the back of my eye. Their equipment wasn't sophisticated enough to identify what it was. They sent us to ophthalmologists. This was in the San Francisco Bay Area where I grew up. And I was diagnosed with something called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. And I was told that by the time I was an adult, likely by the age of 30, I would be completely blind. And so then at about the age of 18 or 19, I woke up with really loud ringing in my ears. And the sensation was that I couldn't hear people speak to me over that ringing. And Mm -hmm. after about, it's almost like what you, if you go to a really loud concert and you leave the concert and you have that ringing, it's called tinnitus or tinnitus. Either way you say it, it's the same thing. People who are war veterans who are exposed to very loud sounds, they oftentimes experience tinnitus. And so that's what I experienced. And after about a week or so, it wasn't going away. So I thought I better get this checked out. And at the time, the type of Usher syndrome I had had not yet been diagnosed or had not yet Mm. been identified. So they diagnosed me with Usher syndrome. They said they'd never seen it as it presented itself in me. But because I had progressive vision and hearing loss, it couldn't be anything else. And it was actually my own family's blood work and a researcher in Helsinki, Finland, that helped identify Usher syndrome type 3. So, um, yeah, and so, but so that's the disability, the condition I live with, but I am a psychotherapist in private practice in New York City. I specialize in anxiety, depression, and mindfulness. I do a a lot of, of different types of practice with people who are sighted and hearing. That's the majority of my practice, but I also have some people who are deaf, who are deafblind, or who are blind. And so I, I really kind of work it with all of these different communities and feel very grateful to be able to do that because, you know, in my own life, I've learned sign language and have had to develop my own skills 
to communicate and maintain my autonomy with a condition like this. So it's really allowed me to be a part of different communities. Mm-hmm. And I'm an extreme athlete. I love physically challenging myself. I teach group fitness classes. And I, I wrote a book, a memoir called Not Fade Away, a memoir of senses lost and found. In my own process of coming to terms with a condition that causes deaf blindness, I found that reading other people's memoirs was particularly meaningful and cathartic. Even mm-hmm. if we had very different lives or circumstances, I always found mm-hmm. these nuggets of insight or information that really resonated with me. And I hadn't seen anyone who had a book that was about the experience of living with this condition. And so I decided to write a, a book. And yeah, that was a, about eight or nine years ago. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. And <laughs> just to keep going about the book while we are talking about that, um, I've seen on your website that there is something about maybe turning the book into a movie, like something about Netflix, something about Emily Blunt. Is that a real thing? Yeah, you know, this has been, I think they bought the movie rights in 2016, and it's 2022, getting close to 2023, and we are still in the process of moving this forward. So it gives me a whole new appreciation for my profession, because my profession is all about trying to understand the truth and what's real. And Hollywood is a little bit different than that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But so, yes, it is still in the works and process of becoming a a motion picture. And that's been an interesting experience for another podcast, to say the least. But I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Would you get to to pick who plays you? Well, you know, because since the time that they bought the rights to it, so much has developed and changed within these social justice movements mm-hmm. that I think that I do have a much more demonstrative role now in deciding and determining how this plays out. So it's interesting. We'll, we'll see how this continues to transpire, to, to work out. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> if and when that happens, you can come back on the podcast and tell us all about it. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. I'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> so when... Um... To go back to your story, when you were diagnosed in kind of two steps, because first it was because of the vision and then because of the hearing, you were young. You you were still like a teenager, young adult, mm-hmm. still, you know, developing yourself, developing your personality, finding who you were. How did that affect your confidence growing up as a teenager, you know, becoming a woman, stuff like that? How, how was that impactful? Yeah, it's a good question, you know, to so and here from a psychotherapeutic standpoint, developmentally, a 12 year old, if you tell them that they're going blind, you developmentally, I wouldn't be able to really wrap my head around what that means, what that looks like. And Mm -hmm. not only that, I was really a sighted person. I was raised as a sighted person. And so what I knew at the time was that I had difficulty seeing at night. And that I often tripped over the dogs who were below me if they were lying on the floor or coffee tables. I had my worst vision was right below me. Mostly people who have RP experience tunnel vision. So they lose their periphery and then they lose their central vision. And I have a sort of rarer presentation where I have donut vision. So I have this outermost periphery of my vision where I see my hands. 
And then if I bring my hands in, I'm showing you, I'm sort of bringing my hands from outside to in. I don't see them. I don't see them. I don't see them. I see them. And it's sort of hard to explain to people what that looks like. But it's sort of like when it, it, it requires a lot of scanning and a lot of being able to, you know, navigate my environment. And over time, as my vision loss has continued, I have started using a cane because it provides a lot of information for me that my vision no longer can. And, you know, the whole development of having a relationship with your cane for people who are progressively going blind is a whole other conversation because it really is somewhat of a coming out process of having a condition that's causing you to lose two of your vital senses and having to go from being seen in the world as a fully able-bodied person, seemingly, to being out in public as someone with a disability. There really is a coming out experience mm -hmm. that many people go through with that. And it's, it's very emotional. It, it obviously has the physical implications, but I think that to be able to go through that and get to the other side has been one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. And what was the oddest part for you personally? Was it the, emotional side of things, like accepting that you were going to have to spend your life with that? Or was it more the I don't know, physical side of things of like, I need to learn how to navigate the world with, without hearing and seeing as much as I had before? What, what was most challenging for you personally? So it's a good question. You know, we, I grew up and, and many of us continue to live in a very clinical and medical model type of world. So when I was, let's say, 15 or so, I was promised that in 10 years there would be treatment to stop further mm -hmm. progression of my vision loss. Right. And then 10 years later, I was promised that in 10 years there would be treatment to stop the progression of my vision loss. And then in 10 years. And so what I started to realize is, you know, I have a very interesting and I think I wouldn't say complicated because that's too strong of a word, but I have a different relationship with hope. And, you know, there's a, a, a Buddhist monk, as, as you both likely know very well, uh, Pema Chodron. She wrote, when things fall apart and the places that scare you and all of these different books that are about dealing with adversity. And, you know, she says to abandon hope. And, you know, I, I've, I've always sort of wrestled with that and tried to understand what it means to live with hope. And I think it is so important for all of us to live with hope. But what I realized is that the way that I saw hope was hoping for treatment, hoping that there would be some way of stopping this further progression of my vision loss, of really relying and hanging on the every words of these researchers, of these scientists, of these doctors, of clinicians, and that so many of us in this community really hang on the words of these clinicians and the carelessness with which these researchers and clinicians provide information, whether it's because they're trying to raise research dollars, whether they actually believe what they're saying, I don't know. Yeah. But what I do know is that when I started to really focus on the psychological and emotional implications of living with a condition like this, I started to really feel the necessary changes I needed to make to develop not only self-confidence, but self-worth 
and a sense of, mm. of self-value and knowing that having a disability did not mean that I was damaged, that I didn't need to be fixed. And I, I think that I, I started to develop resentment towards the medical world because of the carelessness with which they sort of discussed finding treatment and how often and how frequently that has not happened. And so when I started moving into further the things that scared me most. So if I was diagnosed with a condition that's causing me to go deaf and blind, then what is my biggest fear? Going deaf and blind. And mm -hmm. if that's my biggest fear, then how do I come to terms with that? And the way that I've had to come to terms with it is by quite literally exposing myself to both of these worlds and these communities and to putting myself out there as a person with a disability and taking on all of the preconceived ideas that people have about what it means to be someone with a disability. Mm -hmm. And over time, as I've developed this level of self-awareness, of self-acceptance, I've realized that it's actually not, it's no longer my discomfort with my own disability that I deal with. Mm -hmm. I now am out in the world and it's having to take on the discomfort of everyone I come in contact with, yeah. of having to take on whether it is that they have a savior you know, complex or they want to help me, which I sincerely appreciate, or whether they think that someone with a disability is incapable. Whatever it is that's out in the world that I have to absorb that or that I take that on with every interaction I have. And so having to shift my thinking into this is not my stuff, this is theirs. I am fully mm -hmm. confident and comfortable with what my circumstances are, but mm -hmm. it's other people's discomfort with what I represent to them or what comes up for them when they see me that I have had to try to navigate. And I think that's been very informative for me to recognize that I don't have to take on the belief systems or the views or the, the weight that everybody else carries around with them about disability. Yeah. If that makes How sense. Does, yeah. yeah, it does. How does the fact that your disability is, um, how do I word this, like not obvious, like when you think of disability, yeah. you kind of think of somebody in a wheelchair or somebody with cerebral palsy or something that's like really obvious and then you know, looking at you, you look like an able-bodied person and I wouldn't necessarily know that you're going deaf and blind. So yeah. does, is that like an added layer that you've got to explain to people like, hey, I look this way, but actually I'm struggling with this, this and this. Like, does that, I mean, obviously that plays a huge part as well that you don't look disabled, but you are living that experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, and so that that's a very good question. You know, there's a few things, one of which is that, so I have cochlear implants and uh, for those of you who can't see this, I'm taking off my cochlear implant from the side of my head to show mm. you two what that looks like. And it magnetically adheres to the side of my head. And that's how I hear. And there's a T-mic oh, that actually hangs over the opening of my ear, the, the you know, the tunnel of, of our ear. What am I, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> you know, where, where your ear hears sound, registers sound. <laughs> And it gives me the sensation of hearing through my ears when I'm actually hearing through the side of my head, through the cochlea. Oh. But so technology is really incredible. And, you know, I've, I've had to relearn how to hear digitally, which is a, a very interesting and humbling experience. 
But so when my hair is down, people don't see that. When it's up, you know, people can see it. And I don't hesitate if I'm, let's say, ordering coffee and it's very noisy and I don't hear the barista, I'll say, I'm sorry, I'm hearing impaired. Do you mind repeating yourself? And so I I own that now. I You know, it might not be something that people can see, but I have no problem letting them know. Yeah. But the, the other thing is, is that is part of, I think, of a motivating factor for people who don't use their cane or the assistive devices that could be useful to them to start mm-hmm. using it. Because what I found was that when I wasn't using my cane, if I bumped into someone or if someone bumped into me, I usually got a few four letter words thrown at me, you know, watch where you're going, bitch. And really yeah. sort of, you know, obviously it's not personal, but it's hurtful when people say things mm-hmm. like that to you. And I realized, you know, if I was using my cane, instead of calling me names, they'd likely be apologizing. And that it was a way to give people information so that I wouldn't have to tell the world that this is, you know, that I have low vision. And it it at least would register in some way for them. But, But I think most importantly is that when we see people walking around, Having a condition like this makes me so aware of the fact that we have no idea what people are walking around with. You never know what people live with, who you pass on the street, who you prejudge, and we all do it. We all do it. But you just don't know what people live with, the the burdens they carry, and what what conditions they they may be masking or that they may be coming to terms with. Yeah conditions, trauma, you don't know what's happening when they go home, you know, once the door is closed. Yeah, and we all make assumptions, we all make judgment based on what we see, based on what we perceive, but we don't, yeah, we all do that. Mm -hmm. And we're also Uh, very afraid of being judged. We're so conscious of what other people and how other people perceive us. And that stands in our way of being able to ask for the accommodations or be willing to accept ourselves for what we need and who we are. Talking about that now, like obviously you, like you said, you, you own who you are. You are a very confident woman. You do like public speaking. You've done a TED talk on YouTube with like thousands. I don't know how many views, stuff like that. But I guess when you were, when you were younger, uh, you know, like we all have self-confidence issues <laughs> at some point in our life. Um, how did uh, how did you navigate this time, and how did you find the strength to overcome all those challenges? To be like, okay, this is who I am, and and you know, yeah, accept it. So I was like most adolescents and teenagers. I was very self-conscious. I I was fortunate to have a twin brother. I think that was sort of like a built-in cool factor of being boy-girl twins. And uh, my brothers were protective of me, but we were were team players. So I I think that that certainly helped. It was a buffer for me. But when I was younger, so my parents separated and divorced at basically the same time that I was diagnosed with RP. And so I think there was a confluence of different things that happened simultaneously that really fed into some of these belief systems I had about myself. I I grew up with a mom who I viewed as perfect and perfectionism was actually a way that she managed her own anxiety. Mm. And she, in my eyes was so perfect that her maiden name was pink, like the color pink. Mm. And so as a little girl, 
you know, she had perfect handwriting. She had a beautiful singing voice. She was just perfect. And I never felt that way. And I never felt like I was the perfect daughter that she wanted. I think that from a very early age, I felt like there was something wrong with me, that there was really something, something deeply flawed about me before I even had my diagnosis. And so when I got the diagnosis, as much as it was maybe overwhelming, again, I couldn't wrap my head around what it meant. It didn't feel that surprising. Well, of course, if I'm someone who's deeply flawed or screwed up, then of course I'm going blind. Like someone who has problems or is, you know, not a, a perfect person or not what maybe her parents wanted her to be. That was my belief system. Then of course mm -hmm. it would make sense that I would have a condition like this. It didn't feel that surprising. Mm -hmm. And so I lied a lot. I lied about the silliest things and I lied about anything and everything to mask what I believed was the feelings of not being enough. And I, I write a lot about this in my book. It was never malicious things, but it was always mm -hmm. lies to make myself seem like I was better or more important or special than I actually was. It was a way of trying to show that I was, I was good, that I wasn't this terrible person, that I truly believed that I was. And so that's a lot. That's a lot to grow up with. It's a deep-seated belief system that, listen, as a psychotherapist, you can imagine how much therapy I have been through myself, not just for training, but also in coming to terms with a condition like this. And also as a psychotherapist, I think that we have a moral and ethical obligation to see therapists ourselves. Because when you are responsible mm. for the mental health and well-being of so many people, we have an ethical obligation to take care of our own mental health. That makes sense, yeah. It, it, it is fascinating that after going through all that and having those beliefs, you became a psychotherapist. Is it connected by anything or you just wanted to become a psychotherapist just that was like a calling for you or whatever or is it not related at all yeah no that's a good question so i actually wanted i i thought that i wanted to work in i was always fascinated with africa i wanted to work in a francophone mm -hmm. country like senegal or the cote d'ivoire i i really we grew up speaking french in my house and so I always imagined myself doing something abroad in a developing country, working in a community. And so when I graduated college, I was going to do a program in Ghana, West Africa. And just before it was scheduled to, to leave, dengue fever broke out and they canceled the trip. So I ended up moving to Los Angeles. I moved in with my twin brother and a friend. He was starting law school and had to figure out what I was going to do. And I started applying for the Peace Corps. And as I was filling out the application and it's asking me whether I'd want, you know, sort of the, the, the accommodations that would be necessary for me, whether I would be willing to live in an area that had no running water or that had no electricity. I realized, you know, at the time I wore hearing aids, I wasn't cochlear implanted yet. I thought to myself, so if my hearing aid breaks down, it's not like I can run to the audiologist and get it fixed. Yeah. And so I had to be more mindful about what, would be sustainable for me for long-term. Mm -hmm. And I, I grew up with a lot of mental health and mental illness around me. And so I think, again, it was just a combination of all of these things. But, you know, in training to become a psychotherapist, you it's sort of a, 
you, you to kill two birds with one stone. You get to learn a lot about yourself and how these different ideologies and methods and theories apply to yourself, but also how they can be meaningful when you work with others. So it was a, a process of self-discovery and wanting to learn, but it was also because I have all of these different parts of my life that were influential in me understanding how crucial mental health is to our overall health and well-being more than anything else. Our mental health yeah. is the primary factor in whether we, we live a meaningful and fulfilling and strong life. That's a very powerful statement, especially in a society. It is changing, but in a society that have been putting physical health and the way we look, <laughs> especially mm. in the forefront of everything and every single decision. Like, it is changing, but that is a massive statement, I think, to say that actually mental health should be the priority because, and I agree, but ultimately, yeah, like, with, you, you can have the body, the, you can feel as good as you want if in there, in the head, it's, you, you're not right. It's, yeah, ultimately, it's you're not going to go anywhere, but mm -hmm. it's a big statement. Yeah, I think that one of the, it's interesting, so many people that I work with, and you know, because of COVID, mental health has really been thrown into the forefront and the spotlight. And it's actually being, yeah. dare I say, taken seriously now. And I think that it's different than the way that we look at you know, cancer. It's different than the way that we look at all different types of conditions, because it affects your brain. It's how you think. And so it's not like someone says to you, you know, I think these medications would be helpful to you in addition to these behavioral techniques or these behavioral techniques would be helpful to you. People think that they can, if only I had enough willpower, if only I had enough of the strength to get myself out of bed. They believe that there's something within them that they should be able to work from or tap into that will bring them back to full health again. And people medicate, they self-medicate with alcohol, with drugs, with sex, with gambling, you name it. They, they self-medicate with anything and everything. But as soon as you start talking about mental health and potentially I'm not a proponent, nor do I feel like medication is a bad idea. I think it's a very personal decision. But when it comes to taking psychotropic medication, that can be far less damaging to a person and potentially helpful. People absolutely resist. No way. There's, there's no chance I'll take medication. But I will continue yeah. drinking alcohol until I have cirrhosis of the liver or until I, yeah. you know, have withdrawal and I can't stop shaking. It, so it's it's pretty interesting how people kind of deny their own mental health. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we we always put this label on antidepressant. Uh, I don't want to be addicted to it, but yeah, but I'm gonna drink a bottle of wine every single day. That's right. <laughs> right. I see. It is. Uh, it is. When you think about it, it kind of makes no sense. But yeah. Right. Um, so when you, um, at what point? Because I I was going through your website, like you, in terms of being an extreme athlete, uh, you've done some pretty crazy shit. Like you yes. climbed the Kilimanjaro, you swam to like Alcatraz Island, like prison. Um, 
you've cycled for like 600 miles mm-hmm. um like you've done some pretty extreme stuff mm-hmm. um how did you get into like i'm gonna be this badass athlete doing all those crazy stuff and be in pain for three days after because i can't walk anymore and (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a really good question so you know i think that i have having a condition that i have no control over i can control what i eat there's no treatment for this i you know eat a lot a lot of leafy greens and i do that purposely because to me psychologically, but also we know science suggests that it can be helpful in in providing nourishment for my eyes to help maintain the vision I still have. But essentially, Mm -hmm. I have a condition that I have absolutely no control over. I have no way of stopping this or knowing what the trajectory will look like. But I can control my physical strength. I can control how I take care of myself, how I treat myself what I decide to do to challenge myself. And so when I do these extreme races or when I swam from Alcatraz to shore, climb Mount Kilimanjaro, I have this tremendous feeling of being alive, of focusing on the things that I can do and not the things that I can't, of Mm. really being reminded of how able-bodied I truly am and that our mental health of the limitations that are either projected onto us or that we come to believe ourselves are simply just that they're belief systems. They're not truths. And so I think that that has really allowed me to feel so alive. It gives me goals to work towards. And I I love, you know, I would say I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie, not as much as I, (laughs) but you know, bungee jumping, skydiving, I've, I've done all of those things just because that feeling of being alive and of being so completely present to the moment is something that there is really no replacement for. Mm. It's interesting as well, because I think so many people, I think probably less now because of COVID people now working at home, but I think so many people kind of get stuck in that nine to five for 40 years. And then I'll, you know, I'll go to Africa when I'm 60, when I'm retired, but you're never guaranteed to get to 60 and retire. Mm-hmm. So I love the fact that you're like, you know, living life now and doing what you can now, because obviously you're very aware that your sight and vision is getting less and less. So you're trying to do as much as you can while you can. And I think that's such an important reminder for people that are kind of waiting until, oh, I'll do that next year or, you know, in 10 years, 20 years time. I think it's a really important reminder to live life now and do what you want to do now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we, we save up and we think about the future a lot. Anxiety, as you guys likely know, anxiety is rooted in future thinking, and depression is generally rooted in in past thinking and experiences. And so this is part of just another reason why we practice mindfulness and being in the here and now. And, you know, people talk about bucket lists. I hate the idea of a bucket list, because to (laughs) me, it's sort of like checking off something, you know, to do before you die. And instead of focusing on this is something I want to do before I die, how about this is something I want to do because I think it will make me feel so alive. It will allow me to engage my sense of smell, my sense of touch, my sense of sight or vision or, or hearing, whatever it is, that it's the, the idea of doing things that make you feel alive, not things that I want to do before I die, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the intention behind it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What is the craziest shit that you want to do to feel alive that you haven't done yet? 
Is there one thing left that you like, I need to do this? (laughs) Yeah, you know, oh, there's so many things. I, you know, I spent (laughs) a couple summers ago, before COVID, I spent a summer in Thailand volunteering with elephants. I love, love elephants. And so that was one of the things that I would love to go back and do. Thailand, I absolutely loved. I worked in some sanctuaries and helped opened up a a new elephant sanctuary in Koh Samui Mm -hmm. in Thailand. But I would love to go to India and spend some time with elephants there. And, you know, more recently, I I did a a shoot for sort of a mini short documentary on the deafblind community in Monmouth, Oregon, right outside of Portland. And this is a community that has developed their own language called pro-tactile. And it is, it revolves completely around touch. And Mm -hmm. having that experience was so impactful and meaningful that it made me wonder what are some ways that I can really challenge myself in developing my, my other senses, in developing my sense of touch and developing my sense of smell. My sense of smell is very heightened I am generally the person that can have this useless skill of calling out any type of perfume or cologne I smell. My brother, when I go to his house, often asks me to go to his fridge to let him know what's gone bad. I mean, it's not necessarily <laughs> a useful skill, but my I think being able to develop my sense of touch, and this is one of the things I loved about working with elephants, is being able to touch them and to be able mm. to connect with them through my through my tactile abilities. So I, I'm still thinking of what that might be, but the reason why I bring up this deafblind community is that they have what's called a PT house, and it's where they teach people how to use protactile as communication for deafblind you know, people, but also for deafblind children. And they invited me for dinner and to play games. And so I went there and I thought, well, everybody else there was culturally deafblind. So I decided to take my cochlear implants off. And without my cochlear implants on, I am completely deaf. Nobody sleeps better than I do in New York City. You could have a marching band walk through my <laughs> and I would sleep soundly. I would feel the vibration. But other than that, not being able to hear is probably the greatest gift I have ever been given. It is like silence mm. is my religion. But mm. so I decided to go to this house and take my ears off. So I would be deafblind with all of these people and experience it myself, be in sort of the same boat or the same world. And they don't turn the lights on because why should they? It's all based on touch. So I got a tour of the entire house based on touch. Everything I did, I ate tacos, all based on touch. No vision, no hearing. I was communicating with them in this language that I was not only learning, but I was having to revert to my tactile sign language, which is a language that's really been given to the deafblind community, mostly from the hearing sighted world. And it was such an immersive experience and such an incredible experience that it made me feel like I want to continue to do really meaningful or you know, creative things only using my sense of touch. Hmm. Just, I mean, just to touch base on that, how, can you give us an example? Can, I don't really understand how can you communicate like a sentence with just touch, like how does it work? So sign language is sort of based on 
using airspace. So if you have a deafblind person and they're communicating with one other person one-on-one, they can use each other's hands and feel what that feels like. And I, I highly recommend okay. you, you YouTube it. I can send you videos of me tactile signing so you can see what it looks like. But deafblind people historically, if there was more than two people, could not have a communal conversation. They would rely mm-hmm. on an interpreter and it was very isolating. It would make them you know, feel removed and be removed from conversation. And so part of developing this pro-tactile language is so that multiple people who are deafblind can have a conversation at the same time. And I can also send you a video of what that looks like. So that is, it's partially learning that sort of conversational language with more than one deafblind person was really cool. But for example, when you sign dog, you do your, with your right hand or, or your left, depending on what, if you're left or right-handed, you take your hand behind your ear as though you're scratching behind your ear. Oh. Like dogs do. Or you sign D-O-G, which if you sign very quickly, looks like you're snapping for a dog. Those are two signs that people will understand if they're deaf. But if you're a deafblind person or a deafblind child, you don't know, you can't see that a dog scratches their ear. And you can't see that D-O-G, you know, that's sort of an English word. So the sign is making, bringing your index and your pinky fingers up and your middle and ring fingers to your thumb and making the shape of a dog. And so they feel that. Like when you do shadows when you're a kid. Exactly, exactly. And so even something as simple as that, it's so intuitive, it makes sense. Mm. But so there's a lot of ways in which they use, you know, they do palm on palm, which is where you, you know, if you ask someone what time it is, they can say it's 1230. But as I'm showing you, I'm bringing my hands from one from my wrist as though I'm coming from a watch and bringing it out into the air. And it means that you have to really feel someone's hand. It's sort of in this mm-hmm. ambiguous airspace. All mm-hmm. of the protactile signing revolves around using the body. And people are very uncomfortable with touch. We live in a very triggered and traumatized world. And so when I interviewed these deafblind people and I asked them about that, what do you say to people who believe that touch is not something that's appropriate? What do you, what do you say to those people? And they have a, a term that they've coined called distancism, where in order to respect other people, we keep distance, we, we remove ourselves. And when you're a deafblind person, that actually doesn't work. You need touch. You need to be able to orient yourself with your, with your surroundings. You need to do the things that make very hearing sighted, hearing sighted people and even deaf people uncomfortable. And so it's been an interesting lesson in sort of being able to navigate that. But what they said to me is that usually people who are uncomfortable with touch have, and obviously this is a huge generalization, but have issues that they need to focus on, on self-worth and boundaries, of being able to develop self-worth and boundaries, of being able to work through whatever that trauma might be so that they can show up in that way. And so it's interesting. Yeah, no, this is, this is fascinating. I've never heard about that. And it's right. It's always the same, I think, you know, right? When you, when you live in your bubble, you know what you know, but you never know what you don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when you have conversation with people outside of your bubble, then you just discover a whole new world that you had no idea existed with 
different things and um, yeah I mean I've, I've I obviously know about sign language, but I've never heard about that. This is something, yeah, I will, if you send me the videos, I will link them in the resources of the video so people can, can learn about that as well. Because I think that's very valuable for, yeah. for everyone. Um, so we know that you are a disability rights advocate. Why is that so important for you to raise awareness about your own disability, but also other people's disabilities? Well, you know, so we, we live in a very able-bodied world where things are created historically with people who have full use of their bodies, of their senses in mind. And so we're slowly adjusting and adapting to the fact that maybe not everybody has the same abilities. But one of the things that I think is really meaningful, I think that there is a lot of anger and there's a lot of frustration, particularly for marginalized communities, understandably so. But I also think that the best way to be able to engender people, to get them sort of on board and to understand what it's like to live with a disability is to educate them. The same way that I had to be educated when learning to use a cane or when coming to terms with and developing these accessibility skills so that I could navigate my world. So much of what I learned was like so cool and interesting to me. I'm just grabbing my cane and to show you, for instance, so I, I'm bringing out my, my blind person's cane and I'm unfolding it for you as you can hear. And at the very tip of my cane, there's this red reflective tape. And mm -hmm. I never knew until I did my cane training that when someone has red reflective tape on the tip of their cane, that is actually indicative of low, low vision and not total blindness. That when someone has a white cane, that generally indicates total blindness. Now, that's not always the case when you're trying to get a cane and sometimes all they have is a white cane and you still have some vision. The point <laughs> is you just want to have a cane. But I didn't know that and how interesting that is. That seeing the red reflective tape means somebody that they have some usable vision. We don't know how much or how little, but these are all of these little, little snippets of information that yeah. I think are so useful that educate yeah. people and that don't come from a place of attacking them for not doing the things that they need to do to make something more accessible. But it's a way of letting them understand why these things are significant. The tip of my cane, I have a ball that rolls. That using a tip of the cane that's either a ball or that's either uh, what we call the marshmallow, it sort of looks like a little marshmallow, that's a very personal decision. Each person makes their own choice based on what they find to be the easiest to use. Now, I love my ball tip cane because I live in a city that has a lot of unevenly paved streets. There's a lot that I have to navigate, and I find that the ball keeps me from you know, jabbing myself in the gut as frequently as, as I might otherwise. But that's something that's, you know, a very personal decision. The other thing is, is that the majority of technology is driven by disability, that the advancements in technology, like even having Google Maps, all of those things come first and foremost from people with disabilities who can't see mm -hmm. and don't know how to navigate. So Technology and software has been developed in order to provide them with the information they need. And I don't think people really understand or realize just how much disability drives innovation. Mm -hmm. And so I also am trying to set up a future for myself that will be increasingly accessible as my vision and hearing needs change. 
And most importantly, we all, in our lifetimes, we will all develop a disability of some sort, everyone. And so to me, in some way, it's investing in your future. Nobody wants to think about what disability they'll develop or what they won't be able to do or you know, how their needs will change or their abilities will change, but it is inevitable. And people hate thinking about, and I think what, what comes out in them when they see someone like me using a cane is their own morbidity and mortality, is their own discomfort with knowing how to deal with someone who they perceive they should either pity or who needs help. You know, if I'm standing on the street corner and I have my cane, I am likely the last person that someone will go to to ask for directions. And I'm also likely the last person someone would look at and say, she helps people for a living. She's a psychotherapist because of just these preconceived ideas we have. And yet blind people are oftentimes the most knowledgeable, assuming they're in an environment that they know well, but the most knowledgeable in terms of navigation and knowing Mm -hmm. how to find their way from A to B. Yeah, no, that makes sense actually, yeah. There's something that that you said that reminds me of something I've read on your website. Because yeah, I think, as a society, when we see or when we hear about someone with any sort of disability, the, the, the first reaction usually is like, oh, poor you, kind of reaction, mm-hmm. like pity. And and then there is also like another one is if you're a disabled person that is doing anything, either, I don't know, like, if you're fun. doing anything of your life, it's like, oh, wow, you're such an inspiration very often, right? And and I mean, in some cases, okay, like you're climbing the Kilimanjaro, that's pretty dope. Like that is pretty cool. But I th- I feel there is something about disabled people just living the life, having a job. There is this kind of like, oh my God, that is amazing. And I, I don't know, it's not called like inspiration porn or something like that. I, I think Rodrigo said that last yeah. time. But yeah. yeah, can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yeah, inspiration porn is something that people love. It's what drives so much of social media. It's what pulls at people's Mm. heartstrings. It's something that people don't realize really has some serious connotations. But I generally think when people call me an inspiration, that they are very well intended, that they they aren't saying it because they're trying to belittle me or pity me. But I also understand that from a psychoanalytic perspective, I remember an analyst that I trained under when we were discussing calling someone an inspiration, calling me an inspiration, what you're saying is better you than me. And Mm. I had to sit with that, meaning I could never do what you do or that you could do this, but I could never do this. And it's sort of like saying, thank God you're the one and, and not me. Now, of course, everybody will interpret it differently. But that was very meaningful to me in terms of having to think about it and think about how I felt about that. And I I do think that there's some real truth behind it. I think that when you call someone an inspiration, oftentimes it suggests that your beliefs in what they're capable of is limited. And so when they do Mm. accomplish things... You're making assumptions, yeah. You're making assumptions. You're assuming that because they use a wheelchair that they're limited or that they wouldn't be able to climb a mountain 
Now, of course, the way that you climb a mountain and someone who uses a wheelchair climbs a mountain is quite different. But I, I think that the other thing, you know, the re reason why we don't use terminology like wheelchair bound or confined to a mm -hmm. wheelchair is because that suggests that this person is defined by their wheelchair, that if it were mm -hmm. not for their wheelchair, they would not be able to live. And yet people who use wheelchairs see that as their way of maintaining their autonomy, their independence. That's their, their legs, so to speak. That's how they navigate the world. That's how they get around. That's how they're able to live fulfilling lives. And so when we, we suggest that these are things that they're confined to, we are also suggesting that they're limited. And so it's those limiting beliefs that we have to adjust. You know, when we say that someone has a disability and that they can't access certain information, it's actually not their disability that is a limitation. It is the structural, the technological, and the envir environmental limitations yeah. that keep yeah. them from being able to access that information. And so that's another reason why educating the public is so important. Yes, someone may access information, physical spaces, technology in a different way than you do, but the way that you do it is not the only way that it can be accessed or provided. Mm. And that I yeah. think is important. Yeah, and that ultimately is going to require a lot of education and a lot of like political changes to create a society that is accessible to everyone or the majority of the population. Because it, but yeah, but I think education is key, it's, it's, and I think education is the answer to a lot of the problem in the world anyway. Um, talking about disability, but you know, if you talk about racism or stuff like that, education, like, just educate people, talk, 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 talk. That's the best thing you can probably do to solve 99% of the problem in the world, I think, anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I also I think, think it's oh, similar. Ahead. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I think it's similar as well to what you're saying about, you know, somebody use a wheelchair, like, oh, poor them. Well, actually, no, it's amazing because it means that they can be autonomous and get around and do their own thing. I guess it's similar with the cochlear implant, is that people are like, oh, poor her, she's got an, an you know, cochlear implant. Well, actually, it's like, no, it's amazing. It means I can hear again. And, like, it's rather than kind of making it like a bad thing, actually we'll celebrate that thing because it means that you can do so much more and kind of give you more independence back. So it's kind of like, you know, a celebration rather than like an oh, poor them kind of thing. Yeah, and so, you know, I think that even looking at someone who uses a wheelchair is not amazing they can maintain their autonomy and independence. Yes, it's, it's great that we have the ability, but it just is. That's just yeah. how they navigate. It's not yeah. either amazing nor not amazing, it just is. And I think that when we create this differential of here are the people who are really doing things and putting themselves out there and challenging themselves or living with these challenges, that somehow that puts them in a different category, that is a way of othering. And so mm -hmm. I know that it's impossible for us not to do that, but it is something that's worth thinking about. Now, as far as the cochlear implants are concerned, you know, again, this is a whole other podcast the deaf community is a very strong, there's a capital D deaf community, there's a lower D deaf community. And so cochlear implants really threaten the capital D community, the people who are culturally deaf. And it is a very rich and vibrant culture. There are, there's nothing I love more than being able to, to communicate with my deaf friends. They are so straightforward. There's a lack of pretense that I find in the hearing sighted world. 
or in the hearing world that is just doesn't exist in the deaf world. And it can be very off-putting, I think, sometimes for hearing people when they interact maybe with deaf people because the lack of, of pretense or superficiality, like, hi, how are you? Let's grab lunch. You're never going to grab lunch with this person. You're just saying that because it's sort of, you know, an easy way to get going and not have to talk to this person. Mm-hmm. But those are the kinds of nuances that you might not see with uh, a per- within the deaf community. And I remember a time when I was working at the School for the Deaf um, in Brooklyn some years ago. This was like 2008, I think. And I was walking down the hallway with another teacher. And we saw one of the other teachers. She'd been out for a while because her husband had passed away. And she was finally back. And so we just had a conversation with her and said, you know, how are you doing? And this colleague of mine, the teacher, asked her, she said, you know, how are you feeling now? You look like you... And for the audience who can't see me, I am puffing out my my cheeks and I am bringing my hands out from my body in a way that suggests that I've gained weight, that I'm that I'm mm. overweight. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, this is not going to go well. Like she basically asked this woman, hey, you look fat. What happened? Mm-hmm. And in that moment, what she said was, yes, you know, I'm I'm feeling better now. I'm making progress. But. I was eating emotionally for a long time. So I'm just happy to be back at school now where I can, you know, interact with my friends and, you know, do all of the things that make me feel like needed and important. And hello. I mean, if everybody communicated like that, I would be out of a job as a psychotherapist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. she wasn't judging her. She wasn't saying, hey, what happened? You got fat. She was genuinely concerned. Hey, you look like you've gained weight. Are you okay? You know, what's, and obviously, you know, this was, so it it was just a very eye-opening, no pun intended experience, but it was just a a way of kind of conveying the type of direct, straightforward way in which, you know, communication within the deaf community happens that I think is so worthwhile. And so Mm -hmm. getting cochlear implanted for someone like me, I was an ideal candidate. I was raised in a hearing family. I knew how to hear sound so that when I had to relearn how to hear digitally, I could do that much more easily than someone who did not have as much hearing as I had growing up. And a deaf person can't just be implanted and learn how to hear. It's an auditory skill that you must develop at a very young age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a question. So I know that you obviously learn sign language and Braille and... I've forgotten the one where you Pro said tactile. Tactile, tactile. Tactile. Yeah. tactile. There's three languages. Yeah. <laughs> Have your family and friends or will your family and friends learn this? Because you said you came from a hearing family. Is that something they have learned so that as your needs change, they can still communicate with you? Because obviously it's not just about learning sign language, because if your sight changes as well, mm. there's kind of two things there. So is that something that your family and friends who are sighted and hearing are doing to support you oh Rosie (laughs) I my family and friends have tried for a long time not as consistently as you know when it's just like any language you need to be immersed in it you need to be exposed to it daily or you need to practice it regularly and so during COVID we you know would do it one time a week I had a tutor for them and they would do it on zoom and it was sort of like a social, you know, experience, but it was also a way for them to learn sign language. 
but you know, my family, like most of them live in California. I have a sister and her um, girlfriend and they live in Brooklyn. My brother's in you know, Virginia, whatever. And so, and my boyfriend has a master's in financial mathematics, which is a way of saying language is not his strong suit. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. So the answer is that they've tried. Some of them can finger spell, but it, it, it is, you know, I want to say that it's disappointing because it is disappointing that I can't communicate with them, that I have to join their world when I want to interact with them. But I also understand it. I also understand that this development of my disabilities happened later on. It wasn't when I was growing up as much at home. And so while it's disappointing, it's also understandable and I don't begrudge them for it. No. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca, for this awesome conversation. I feel we need to have you back on the podcast because there's <laughs> so many things we could be talking about, to yeah. be honest, uh, and 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 it could be a three hours conversation. But uh, no, yeah. Thank you for your time and thank you for just yeah, like we said a few times, educating us uh, on a topic. It was really really cool. I got one last question before we actually wrap it up. Yeah. It's a uh, a question that we ask everybody in the podcast. If you could have a conversation with anybody dead or alive, famous or not, who you think would be the most interesting person to talk to? Who would you pick and why? And don't overthink it, just first thing coming to your mind. I know. So the first person that comes to mind is Martin Luther King because he was a visionary. And so I think visionaries are the ones that I, this woman, Yelisa Nuccio, who started the pro-tactile language and movement really, she is a visionary. And every time I'm with her, learning pro-tactile, but communicating with her, I feel like I am enlightened. So, listen, Martin Luther King's the first person who comes to mind, but there there are so many people that I would love to have conversations with. Uh, but that that's the first person who comes to mind. And given the the length of time that we have here, other people I think of might might take some time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I will link your, your website and your contact in the show notes so people can reach out to you, can get your book and, and, and see everything that you're doing. Your Instagram account as well. You share a lot of tips on your Instagram, like the cane mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So you, I'll make sure people follow you to, again, get educated on the topic. But yeah, thank you so much, Rebecca. It was a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I mean, it's so nice to be able to have open conversation about this stuff, and I really appreciate your curiosity. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing everything. Um, Thank you for everybody watching on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe, give us a thumbs up, leave a comment if you enjoyed this episode. Everybody listening, thank you as well. We'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. Bye. Bye!